That is a beautiful passage. We had talked through that passage this morning. If you're new to Redemption, new to Redemption North Mountain, just know we like to open up the book of the book of the Bible and kind of walk through it. That means there's Bibles underneath chairs if you need one. If you don't have a Bible, please take that and uh, do what you want with it. Give it to a friend or use it for yourself. But we believe the Bible is the source of all we need in this life, and that's why we go to it every Sunday. So here's what we're doing today, walking through this beautiful Picture. Here's my question. What would you use as a picture to describe the Christian life? If you had to draw, if it was Pictionary and you were to draw the Christian life, what would you draw? I'm assuming a lot of us would draw a cross. That'd probably be what most of us would draw because that would probably win. But what's the picture you have in your head when you think about Christianity? For me, I have a picture out of the book of Proverbs. It says, whenever uh, there's many oxen, the manger's dirty. But if you want fruit, it comes by the strength of an ox. Translation, if you want to do anything worthwhile in this life, it's going to be messy. It's going to be dirty. It's going to take time and resources, and you're not going to have everything buttoned up. But you will produce crops. My wife has a beautiful picture in her head of what she pictured family to be. It's also a picture of church. Uh, while you were sleeping, this great rom-com from back in the 90s. And it's this beautiful scene where the family's around the table and everybody's just talking out loud and nobody's really listening to it. Everyone's just, it's just a crazy, chaotic family dinner time. And she's like, that's what I want for my family. And now she has it. And she's like, that is not what I want <laughs> for my family. A redo. That's not what I meant. I meant like cute, quiet, buttoned up. Kids, that's what I... But what we're coming to in this passage is Jesus' picture he wants to, to leave us with. And it's, a, it's important to realize this is the end of Jesus' life, so he's like laying it all out there. John 13 through 17 is the end of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And John 15 is smack dab in the middle as a way to say, this is the center of my final message. This is kind of the thrust of what I want you to know, disciples. Here's what I want. And what he wants is to us, for us to have a picture and he gives us a picture of a vine, a fruit, a vine dresser, a vineyard. Here's the picture of the Christian life. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through that picture and just kind of learn what Jesus wants us to learn. A few simple questions. I didn't want to overcomplicate it, but here's what we're going to ask of this picture. What is abiding? Why do we abide? And how do we abide? What is it? Why should we do it? And how do we do this? That's what we're going to walk through this morning. So if you will, bow your heads and pray with me real quick. Jesus, be with us. Yet again, as we open up your word, as we confess our dependence, just in the action of opening up the word to say that we do not have the answers, but we believe you do. So God, meet us through your word, through the words of Jesus, through this beautiful imagery and picture he has given to us to describe and to shape and to influence our view of what the Christian life, what the the life that follows Jesus should look like. Lord, be with us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's the picture of what Jesus says. Here's what it's like. Here's the Christian life. Here's what it means. This picture right here. Where do I see that? Right away, Jack Reddit. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is the picture Jesus leaves. This is the mental image he wants us to have. Now, what does he mean, I am the true vine. He could have just said, I'm a vine. I'm like a vine. I'm sort of, you know, vine-like. He says, I am the true 
vine. What does he mean by that? Just remember, in context, he's speaking to Jewish people. His disciples are Jewish. He's Jewish. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And he is coming. And in that context, he's saying, I am the true vine. He's speaking to Israel. And Israel was called the vine throughout the whole Old Testament. You're this luscious vine. You're this vine I was, I've made for the world. I've planted you, Israel, right smack dab geographically in the middle of everything going on. All the nations around you, all the languages, all the cultures, and you were to be my vine. Sprouting up and producing fruit to benefit and bless the world. You are the vine, Israel. And now Jesus in that context comes and says, I am the true vine, which means Israel did not do its job. Most of the vine imagery, as you read through the Old Testament, is sort of, this is what I hoped you would be, and this is what you ended up being. You were a failed vine. This is a passage out of Psalm 80. It's one of the famous ones people go to for vine imagery. Put on the screen there. Psalm 80. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, Israel, the Jewish people. The stock that your right hand planted, talking about God, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. However, what's the result of this vine? They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. You don't need to have a PhD to translate. It wasn't good. They didn't do the vine work. They didn't produce what vines were supposed to produce. So in that context, Jesus says, I am the true vine. The blessing of the world is going to come through me who is a Jewish man, who is the Jewish Messiah. It's not going to come through the Jewish people as a collective group getting their act together. It's going to come through me. I am the true vine. Who else do we see in there? He says, my father is the vine dresser. So his heavenly father is the gardener. He's the one pruning and cutting and doing the work. Verse 2 there, let's look at what the, the father is doing as a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What's the vine dresser doing? He's doing one of two things. He's cutting off branches that aren't bearing fruit, or he's pruning back branches so that they will bear more fruit. He is the one doing the work. He is sovereignly in control. God, the Father's hands, is the hands at work in this moment for all of us in this room on what is happening in our life. And he's cutting off and he's cutting back for the sake of more growth. Now, what's the like, result? What's the goal of all this? Uh, in the middle of verse 2, that they bear fruit. They bear fruit. And you go on, you go, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in thee. What's the goal? Fruit. Now here's where this is an analogy. It's not actual fruit. We got to kind of ask the question, what's the fruit? And if you Google, what is fruit in the Christian? This is, what I, this is how I type. I like my, uh, how do you, how do, what, what does it say? The most common reference uh, verse is Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these, there is no law. And I think that is a great answer to what fruit in the Christian life is. But if we just want to stay in this story and not kind of jump ahead to a book that wasn't even around for these people to listen to yet, what is, what is fruit? Within the story, it's something that the vine dresser, the gardener, is proud of. That's what I wanted. It's actions, it's motivations, it's words, it's deeds, it's thoughts that makes the father proud, happy, pleased. 
And what else does fruit do? It blesses people. You don't just stare at fruit. You eat fruit. You take in fruit. It's something that blesses others, blesses you or others. So what is fruit? It's something that God says, I like that. That's the apricot I was wanting. We planted an apple tree in the spring last year, and it's in front of my kid's Jude's window because he loves apples. I mean, he eats like six apples a day. I'm like, I'm going to make him an apple tree. And the other day he's like, is this thing ever going to make any apples? And I'm like, chill out. I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> Why? Because he wants to eat an apple. He wants to eat like six apples off his own apple tree. Fruit blesses people. So a life that is blessing to other people. And then here's the thing. The only thing that's slightly complicated as far as taking this analogy and using it in this room or any room is what are the branches we're talking about? Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Chops off is another way to say that. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Who are the branches? This is where you can sort of get off on slippery slopes and go down uh, not great paths theologically. Just in context, remember, Jesus is talking to 11 disciples, his followers, committed people who love him. They're going to fall and stumble. Peter's going to say dumb stuff. We get it. But they love him. So he's speaking to a Christian audience. And he's talking about this branch that gets cut off and this branch that gets pruned. And there's sort of two camps of taking very strong stances on what Jesus is saying in this. And I just kind of want to walk through just what I, how I see this. Here's the first thing we could say. What's, we could say that these branches are Christians that get cut off. If you go down further, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You could say those branches were Christians that have been taken away from Jesus now, thrown down, burned. You could extend that analogy out. I don't think it's helpful to talk about eternal destruction and all those things, which I think the Bible teaches, but I don't think is the point of this story. But here's what's very problematic about that, and some of you know what's problematic with that, is if you grew up in a faith tradition where you could lose your salvation is the language. You could place your faith in Jesus. I committed to him. I was 17 years old. I was 23 years old. I committed to Jesus, but then in my late 20s, I fell away and my salvation is gone. I no longer have faith in Jesus. I'm the branch that's been taken away. That is not what the Bible teaches ever. And that is a very real weighty thing that a lot of people wrestle with. Like, can I lose this? The answer is no. I had somebody from the church texting me this week like, can you lose your salvation? Because I'm talking to people who say you can't. And I kind of put together a quick text answer, but no, you can't. The faith that you have was given to you as a gift by God. And he doesn't take back his gifts. The second thing, it says, Jesus says this, all that the Father has given me, by no means will I cast out. I will keep you to the end. Jesus says, I have a firm grip on you. You will not go down. Nothing will take me from you. So when we see these analogies and these teachings, we can't apply it to that. It is not talking about losing your salvation. But here's the other problem. What if the problem was seeing these branches as non-Christians only? And you just take it as a sort of, well, this is where I'd go to teach people about the doctrine of hell and judgment and punishment. The biggest thing, just on a basic reading level, is I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to talk about. He's sort of zeroing in on this moment. And he's like, eyeball to eyeball, disciples. Let's talk. And the thing he wants them to get is not a definitive ending answer about eternity and how it's all going to go down, down the road. 
He's like, I want you to know how life works. I want you to know how life should feel and what life should be about here and now. Does Jesus have real answers about eternity and where people are going? Absolutely. But in this passage, I don't think that's what he's getting after. So if you're a Christian in this room, I don't want this to be like, okay, I don't have to listen because I'm secure. That's not his point either. I think you should think through it. Am I in a season of branch breaking? Like, am I... What's my season like right now? And not in an eternal God has left me sense, but learn from what Jesus wants. He wants us to have good lives here and now, and this is the good life. So when we look at this, Jesus is not teaching an analogy about vine and his father being the vine dresser and fruit to give us answers about our eternal destiny and where we're going to end up. He says, listen up. This is how life works here and now. I want you to listen to me. This is what life is like in the kingdom of God, which takes us to our next. What point is Jesus making that? It's not about down there. That's important, but I'm talking about right here. Let's look at verse 3, and we're going to read down through verse 6 in a second here. But verse 3, Jesus sort of clears up the Christian, non-Christian thing. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Pause right there. That word clean is the same sort of root word as prune. So he's talking to Christians Already you've been pruned, you've been cleaned, you've been cleansed. Now I'm going to get to work on you. Translation, if you're in Jesus, here's how it works. Your faith is secure. Your forgiveness is set. All your sins have been washed away. As far as the east is from the west, you are eternally secure. Jesus says it this way. Already you've been pruned. You're part of the tree. Now already you've been cleansed. You are in it now. Now let's talk about life being a part of the vine, being a part of the family of God. Verse 4, this is what Jesus wants us to get. If we leave here believing this a little bit more, I think we won this morning. I think we got it. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Pause right there. We only have one screen. That one's down. But here's the verse. I think this is Jesus' whole point. This whole analogy is pushing towards this. And not just to be like, oh, that's a cool story. But like, is that reality true of my life right now? Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe the words in yellow? Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Here's what I know about myself, and I'm a lot like a lot of you. I don't really believe that. I walk around with a level of self-sufficiency. For good reason, oftentimes, I've made it this far in life. Like, I got into my 30s. I'm heading toward my 40s. I'm, I'm alive, paying my bills, got a couple kids, a wife that likes me. Lots of sometimes and most of the time. Got a house. Like we are self-sufficient beings. We're trying to raise our kids to be self-sufficient beings. And then we smack into this verse and it says, if you don't have this mindset, you're missing it. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. That's the point. If I had to summarize it, here would be the, the simple man's way to say it. To do anything in life that matters, we must abide in Jesus. You can flip that around. If you don't abide in Jesus, nothing in your life will matter. 
to do anything that matters, abide in Jesus. If you don't abide in Jesus, nothing we do, you do, I do, will ultimately matter. There will be no fruit. That is a big statement. That is the biggest statement you might hear all. Like, I, I wrote this down. I think that might be the most controversial truth that you're told to believe. Today, all week. When you go to work, when you go to do whatever you're going to do, when you're shopping, when you're hanging with friends, like the most controversial, the most uh, stop you in your tracks thing you're going to hear is going to be that if it bounces around your head at all. Do I really believe that in this moment? The only thing I can do is abide in Jesus if I want anything that matters to happen. Do I really believe that? I don't. I put it on my phone as the screens are. I'm like, I need to read that more often. Like, that is not the way I naturally do life. That Jesus is the source, and my job is just to stay really close to the source, period. And that's life. That's Christianity. That's following Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure this out, just so you know, that is different than any other religion or system or thought or world leader you could go follow. It's going to be, oh, you want to have the good life? Here's what you do, 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 do. Christianity says, here's the good life. His name is Jesus. Just get really close to him snuggle him like I snuggle Ozzy. Get as close as you can and don't leave. Period. That's the Christian life. That's the point Jesus wants. That being said, though, this word abide is sort of a Christian word that we don't really use in our common vernacular. So let's just walk through. What is abiding? Just like show I'm going to use the word abide this week to describe anything you were doing ever. Not a single person. What was Marcus doing? Oh, I was with my firefighter buddies. I was just abiding with Joe. No, he didn't say that. I was just abiding with Aubrey on her date. We don't use it. In Christian language, you get in here and you kind of, at some point, I, don't, I see it happening. And then once it happens, like it's, you're done, though. You're like the person that uses Christian language all the time. I am just fellowshipping with the purchased and the redeemed <laughs> over the Lamb, God. And we're just abiding, you know? Like, that's kind of what I do all weekend. And your buddy at work's like, what? <laughs> but this is the language Jesus gives. Genesee has this tattoo on her arm, so we want to give her definitions. What does abide <laughs> mean? She's like, ah, oh, that's not what I thought it meant. Damn. <laughs> what is abiding? Here's basic definition. It means to remain, to stay, to reside, to connect. It's a relational, like, dependency. Are you remaining in Jesus? Are you connected to him? Are you close with him? Part of why abide is not higher on the language list in the Christian world is just we come out of the Reformation. We all are affected by the Reformation. 500 years ago to the day, Halloween is sort of like when we say, yeah, that's we'll take it as a Christian holiday. It's the Reformation holiday. or It's really just we want candy. But 500 years ago... A couple guys were looking at Catholic doctrine and saying, ah, that's, that's off. And they steered the course and they started the Protestant Reformation. We are now in that line. And those early thinkers and leaders were all lawyers, which is not bad. But it shapes the way you view the word. Like you're a courtroom thinker. I'm a hammer, everything I see is a nail. That's how it works. I'm a lawyer, everything I see is a courtroom situation. And the language that came out of the Protestant Reformation is very, very courtroom-based, justification. It's why we all know that we have been justified. 
by our faith in Jesus, period, which means we are declared righteous, legal terms. We are no longer condemned, legal terms. All from the Bible, but the emphasis gets put on those. Like I was thinking, just daydreaming, sitting out by my orange tree, like, what if the Reformation was kicked off by a bunch of gardeners and farmers? Our view of Christianity would be a little more heavy in the words of agriculture and trees. And the word abide would be like, that's what we think about when we think about the Christian life. But I think most of us by default think about our legal standing before God. Which is good to have a good legal standing before God. Ultimately, it has eternal consequences. However, we could miss out on some beautiful imagery that Jesus wants us to camp out on. Abiding. What is it not? It's not a devotional. It's not you just getting up to read your Bible. That's part of it. But it's not like, all right, I got to... John 15, I'm going to read this, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I know I'm going to do it, and you get through, yes, abided today. <laughs> and then if you pray, yes, double abided, like there's no break in this. It's like, uh, maybe. It's not church experience, it's not service to others necessarily, it's not just religious activity. Abiding is this relational reality that fits in any situation you're ever in. You can abide in any situation you're in, suffering, prosperity, mundane life, which is most of life, or the exciting times of life, you can be abiding or not abiding. Just to let Jesus' words speak for us, let's just kind of say, what does he say about abiding? Go to verse 4. He says this, abide in me and I in you, okay? That's his statement over this. Go to verse 10. Well, Jesus, unpack this a little more. Tell me about this abiding thing. Verse 10 says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. All right, if you keep my commandments, you're abiding in me now. Go to verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Abide in me, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in me, keeping my commandments is loving one another. What is abiding about? It seems to be about love. Seems to be strictly about loving relationships, both vertically abiding in Jesus' love. He says, abide in my love, abide in my words. But then if you keep my commandments horizontally, loving horizontally, you are abiding in my love. What is it? Abiding is uh, this loving reality. Here's the word. I've tried to think of the most simple way for me to think about. Okay, what is this? Abiding is this. Intimately Depending on Jesus' love as you love others. Are you abiding? Am I intimately depending on Jesus' love to love others? I'm abiding. I'm staying close. I'm remaining. I'm staying connected. I am abiding. That's what abiding is. It's this intimacy and dependency that receives and gives love. Now, according to Jesus' words here, why would we want to abide? Why do we abide? Let's just look at some verses. Here's the reason why Jesus say we should want to abide. Go to verse 2 again. The first reason is simple. It's sort of the whole point of this is to bear much fruit. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide and you'll bear fruit. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Go to verse 8. 
By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And then finally, verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you, appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why do we want to abide? Because it's the only way to do anything that matters. In terms of this analogy, it's the only way we're ever going to bear fruit is abiding, staying close to the source of life, Jesus Christ. Like, that should level us. That if I'm not connected to Jesus, what I'm doing ultimately does not matter. But if I'm connected to Jesus, I am doing stuff that matters. I am bearing fruit. Here's the other thing, verse 7. I love this one because it's an area I need to grow in as far as my faith. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Answered prayers is another reward of abiding now you could take this and run with it and do goofy stuff quickly i get that like i just got ozzy into aladdin finally i'm like he's watching disney movies i like he was all into toy story like the dumb ones like four and all. I'm like can you watch aladdin please and he's like i love it this is the best why because there's a genie and you get wishes and you rub the lamp and you get three wishes you just can't wish for love right you, jasmine has to fall in love with you on your own but this is sort of like we get that with the Father in heaven. Not in a cheesy, like, I'm going to use this selfishly and narcissistically, but he really wants to answer our prayers. When? When we're abiding in his words and his words are abiding in us. Ask whatever you want and it will be given to you. That is amazing. Like Francis Chan always rates his kids. You know, he has a bunch of kids, but when they were teenagers and they wanted to date, they'd bring them over. And he's like, all right, here's how I'm going to test you. What's the last prayer that God answered for you? And if they couldn't answer, he'd be like, all right, get out of my house. Meaning, I don't want somebody who has not a vibrant, ongoing relationship with Jesus in my kid's life. And if they're not praying things, asking God to do stuff, get, a, get out of here. Get out of here, son. Come back when you have a prayer answered. We get answered prayers. Verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified. We also get to glorify God with our fruit. The ultimate thing that matters in this world, the glory of God, the glory of the Father happens when we abide and bear much fruit. Our Father is glorified. He is made more famous, made more known. Not that he needs more fame or notoriety, but the world does not know him. And we're trying to fill this earth with the knowledge of God, and our fruit does that and brings glory to him. Here's the next thing we see. Our faith is proved true. Verse 8, at the end of that verse. Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Who gets the proof that we are actually his disciples? Who needs it? Is it the Father who gave us the gift of faith? Who brought us to Jesus? No, we get to prove to ourselves and to others. Not in a like, see, I told you, I'm Jesus. But like, okay. I do belong to Jesus in this very confusing world where all these things are coming at me. This fruit, it could be a tiny little kumquat. But there's fruit, and that proves that I am with Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. Proves to me, proves to others. Even James talks about why God gives us trials and testings. It's to prove the genuineness of your faith. And again, God does not need proof that your faith is genuine. He gave you the gift of faith. It's for you to know, okay, this is real. I got this. There's fruit in my life. I, I can do this again. I can go through another season of pruning, another season. I can go through 2020 again. I can do this. 
Why? Because I have been proved to be a disciple. And then the most beautiful one, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that your uh, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Your f- joy will be full as you abide more and more. Those are beautiful things. Answered prayers. God is glorified. We're proven to be true disciples. And your joy will be full as you abide. Now, how are we doing in all those? How's our joy? How's our fruit bearing? How's our prayer life and answered prayers? Like, all of us can say, ah. And that's the Christian life. Is like, here's the standard. Here's where we want to go. We're always right here. What do we do? How do we move from here to here? The answer in this is simple, abide. Not get up, get back to work, figure this out. Jesus says, abide in me. Wherever you're at, you come in here with whatever is going on in your life. Jesus tells you this, abide in me. That's it. Stay close to me. Abide. Abide. How do we abide? How we do this very church world word that we don't use often. How do we this. Here's what I want to just end on. I wrote down a few thoughts on how we can abide more and more in Jesus Christ. So here's what I have. How do we abide? First thing I say is keep this as the priority when you think about the Christian life. Like so often we become Christians and then we think about, well, what's the Christian life? It gets filled in with sort of spiritual disciplines or like feelings I have in the moment towards specific things. I would say Jesus gives this at this particular point in his life to say this is the Christian life. Keep this as the priority. Priority, Abide. I want to just show you the verse again. That's the priority. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Memorize that verse. Make it the priority. I was listening to a talk recently about the word priority. It was fascinating. He says Americans have screwed up the word priority and they've made it plural. They now have the word priorities, which isn't a thing. He says this, the word priority came in the English language in the 1400s. It was singular, which means there's one priority. It meant the first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years until the 1900s when Americans decided to pluralize the term and start talking about our priorities. Illogically, we reason that by changing the word, we could bend reality and somehow have multiple first things. Fascinating. What's the Christian priority? Abide. Period. Everything else comes out of that. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. That is our priority. Here's the other thing I would tell you to do. Start to see your life through this imagery of the vine and the vine dresser. Like even as you look back on your life and you're looking at seasons, that was a season of pruning. That was a season of fruit. That was a season of very much fruit. This season I'm in seems like a season of pruning. And as you start to use language that God gives us to describe the Christian experience, it helps you just be present in the moment what God has for you even more. Rather than I'm just here for success and uh, success and failures, it's no, you're, you're a branch. You're attached to a vine. What's going on in the life of the branch right now? Think through it that way. See your life through this imagery more and more. Here's a third one. The best way I can say is be around word-dependent people. We live in a self-sufficient, 
world, economy, country. We are to do our best and to achieve, achieve, achieve. And the church is this countercultural swimming upstream in this world of self-sufficiency. And we come in here as a way to declare and confess we are dependent. You come here and you go to men's studies and women's studies and RC as a way to be around word-dependent people, people who really want this to be true of their lives, that they are abiding in his words because apart from him, they can do nothing. And Hebrews warns us, do not neglect the gathering. Why? Because your heart will be hardened. Translation, I'll say, your heart will become very self-sufficient, which is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. We must be a needy bunch. So being around other needy people helps. And we just have to admit, like, nobody wants to be codependent, right? Like all the single people in this area, that is not your top Tinder description of yourself. Yeah, I'm Jennifer. Real case of codependency, let me just tell you. <laughs> Swipe right for more info. And the church says, we're codependent. We need Jesus. Here's the next thing. Keep love as the center of how you view all things. We can start to redefine success. Well, I read the Bible for 16 hours. Who asked you to do that? I just did it. And aren't you impressed? I don't know, your kid over there seems pretty frustrated and you're unaware of it, so no, I'm not impressed with your Bible reading because it should lead us to more and more love. This is about love. Jesus, summarize the law. 614 commandments, tell, what is, I just, I'm, I'm a simple guy. Tell me the law. Love God, love others. That's it. So all this comes down to, all the theology we dive into, all the Bible study plans we do, all the church gatherings we do, if it's not pushing us into more and more love, it is missing the point. Keep love as the main thing. I wrote down a few questions. Ask yourself, what new people have you loved recently? Like, oh, that sounds messy. Yeah. What people in your life have you loved more deeply and more sacrificially recently? That's what Jesus wants us thinking about. As we go to the word to learn from him, how is your spouse currently experiencing your love right now? That's the goal. Love, love, love. Paul says if you got all this other stuff, knowledge and degrees and church attendance and you're the impressive one at any church setting, you're like a bad drummer if there's no love. And then finally, here's the fifth thing, and... The most important thing, the priority, keep yourself in the love of Jesus. We are to love others, but we are drawing from a center. We are like going into God's kitchen. He has all the ingredients. He has all that we need. We just go and receive from him. We are not conjuring up love from somewhere. We're not making it up. We're going to receive it. Keep yourself in the love of Jesus. Jesus says it this way, abide in my love. Stay close to the love of Jesus. The way redemption would talk about this is gospel-centered, outward focus. Outward focus is love towards other. Gospel-centered is receiving the love that we have in Jesus, his finished work on the cross and his current life and disposition towards us right now. Keep yourself in that love. Stay close to that love. Connect, remain in the love of Jesus. A Canadian Christian thinker talks about, here's how I think most people think God views them. He's like, I, I go around all over and I ask people, what, you know, about their Christian walk in their life. And he said, if I had to narrow it down, what's the one word that describes how God feels about you right now? Everyone across the board, he would say, the word that comes up most is disappointed. 
Translation, not the words that we get from Jesus as he's sending off his disciples into the world. Abide in my love. Like, just look at verse 9. Here's how Jesus loves us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. What more perfect love than the one that originates from the Father towards the Son? And Jesus says, that's the love I have for you right now. And he goes and he fleshes out even more. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Who's his friends? Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Translation, I love you, and you're my friend. Stay close to that love in Jesus. He is not disappointed. If you are in sin, do not run from him. That's what Adam created as a bad habit that we all come into this world with. Our natural inclination is to run when we're in sin. And Jesus says, abide in my love. Why? Because I love you like the Father loved me and you are my friend. And when you're killing and you're successful, do not run from him thinking you're self-sufficient. Abide in my love. Why? Because you're my friend. Like what a beautiful thought to have on our mind Sunday. What does Jesus think of you right now? That's my friend. Like I, the st fire station over here on 32nd Street, my best friend's a captain there, and whenever a truck drives by, I'm always excited. Hey, there's my friend, right? <laughs> like, this guy's like, there's that grown man again, like, ah! Like, that's my friend, I know him, that's my friend, Ryan! We used to do sleep, but Ryan! And God... In the person of Jesus, the king of the universe, says, that's my friend. Emily, that's my friend. Jack, that's my friend. Like, you do not get that anywhere. But when you open up and Jesus says, abide in me and my love. I love you and you're my friend and stay close to that love. Abide, abide, abide. I want to read the verse one more time. Let Jesus have the last word. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, we can do nothing. Let's pray together. That's our confession, Lord. We can do nothing apart from you. We confess it. We ask that the Spirit now speak specifically to situations and people and circumstances where this verse, this truth, does not match how we're living. We want to abide. And all of us have self-sufficiency deep-rooted in our bones that can only be taken out by the gospel and by your gracious surgical hand. So do that. Lord, we love you. Jesus' name I pray, amen.